in chapter 7. I'm not really going to follow the handout today, um, so I just gave this to you in case you are keeping your collection. Some, I know some people are a little OCD with their handouts and stuff, and they keep a file or something like that. And other people make their way to wastebasket with them, so I don't know which person you are, but um, we're going to use the passage, and my dad's gone this week and next week, and I'm filling in. So I want to walk through this, and obviously we've been in the lives of Elijah and Elisha, and so this is a really interesting passage, and it goes, it bleeds over from 2 Kings 6 into 2 Kings 7. So we're going to look at both chapters. So we'll start in 2 Kings chapter 6, and I want you to notice verse number 24 is where we're going to begin. 2 Kings 6 and verse number 24. So now we're obviously we're looking at the life of Elisha. This is the prophet who's followed Elijah. And in verse number 24 of chapter 6, it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. So this is a this is was common in the day. This is siege warfare. And so there's a walled city, the city of Samaria, which is the capital city of Israel. You say, well, I thought that's Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah, but Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Those 10 tribes, that northern kingdom of Israel, they didn't have, um, they just didn't have a good king. None of the kings uh, honored God at all. And so really the nation is dealing with the judgment that was prophesied to come. And this judgment is being enacted through Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. So they're under this siege. And obviously, what is the goal of siege warfare? Yeah, and you don't, they don't, but, but siege warfare isn't about storming the gates. It's about waiting them out. You're starving them out. You're, the goal is to just see, you just, they're just camped out there. There's not much fighting going on. They're just waiting. So they've locked off all the provisions, so nothing can get in or out of the city. And you come to verse number, and you'll see the description here. Because of this, verse 25 there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. So obviously, they're, this is what they're eating. This is how bad it's gotten. So you, it's, it's, th these kinds of things, are, I just feel, are really hard for us to to really understand. Um, nothing like we've ever experienced before. So, so they're eating a donkey's head or a um, dove's dung, and they're paying for it. This is how desperate the situation has gotten. And as the king of Israel, and it gets worse though, because now you see there's some are resorting to cannibalism. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, 
If the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? What, what does he mean by that? What's going on here with this king? This woman cries out. He's walking the walls out there. He sees all the tents of the Syrian hosts that have besieged him. He's walking there, and somebody says, oh, she recognizes him. She says, oh, that's the king. There he is. And she says, help me. And then he responds, if the Lord does not help you, how am I, what's his point here? What's he saying? Yeah, but, but like, what is, what is this, like, where, where is this coming from? What's his, what's the, yeah. Yeah. So he's saying in this statement, like basically, I think what he's saying here is, like, there's nothing I can do. God has obviously abandoned us in his statement here. He's like, if the Lord's not going to help you, what am I supposed to do? In other words, if God has, if there's nothing God will offer. Now, what's the great irony of this attitude? What's the, what kind of, yeah. Right. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. He has, he has, he's shifting the blame. I think that was the statement that you said. He's shifting the blame. He's say, blame saying, well, God has just abandoned us. I can't help you. Well, actually, he could help. He could help that woman. And how could he help her in that moment? Well, he could do what many, yeah. Yeah, he could repent in sackcloth and ashes, and he could proclaim a day of fasting, and he could turn the hearts of the people to the Lord. Do you think that speaks to sometimes people's attitudes, right? They, their, their lives, sometimes people's lives unravel, and they say, oh, you know, what's the point? Or they get to a place where they say, I don't want to, I don't want to go to, I don't want to, I wouldn't go to a church, or I wouldn't, I don't need God. I mean, look, my life is so terrible anyway. What has God ever done for me? In fact, I've heard people say things like that. What has God ever done for me? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Loss of hope here. So the king could make a difference, but he doesn't. And he, he, he just says, and then he speaks sarcastically. What would you like me to do? Would you like me to just go into the barn floor? Yeah, and I'll just scoop up all the grain that I've got there, and I'll just, I'll give that to you. Or would you like me to go to the wine press, and I'll just pour out some, uh, some wine for you? But now he finally says, well, well, what's the problem? Verse 28, what's your problem? And she answered, and she points to another woman. And she said, this woman said to me, give me thy son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, give, give thy son that we may eat him. And she had hid her son. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes and he passed by upon the wall. And the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. 
You talk about blame shifting, he's done it again in his dis desperation. You, you would see at first he rents his clothes, he's got sackcloth, and you think, okay, this might be a step in the right direction. But now who does he shift the blame to? He shifts it to Elijah. Why is he shifting the blame to Elisha? Yeah? Right. Elisha is the one who gave the prophecy, right? That's why he's, he knows that, so not only is he, is he against God, but now he's against the one who just simply speaks in the name of God. Study the book of Revelation and the, in the times of great tribulation that the Bible talks about are going to come upon the world in the last days. And despite all of the judgments that are being poured out, do people's, are people's hearts turning back to God in those days? No, not at all. In fact, people are, in fact, people are becoming more and more hardened. And so the judgment of God either leads people to, but here's what often happens. When a warning of judgment comes, when a warning of judgment comes, sometimes people will turn to God. And in fact, that's one of the things we're supposed to do today. We're supposed to warn people of the judgment that is to come. I listened to, a, I watched, a, or I followed, or I read a thread on a social media feed this past week that really stood out to me. And he was a pastor. And this pastor was speaking about years ago, he was involved in ministry and he had the opportunity to witness to a young man. Now, this young man was a seeker. He, was, he had lots of questions, lots and lots and lots of questions. And he was, uh, you know, why this and how come this? And this guy was really an expert at answering all of those questions from the Bible and answering all the questions of the Christian worldview compared to the modern worldview. And he would work through all these things, but the guy would listen and he would... Uh, nod his head as if he was understanding, but he never would come to that place where he would turn and give his life to Christ. And the, the pastor said it was a source of frustration for him. They spent all this time with him, and he answered all those questions, and he laid out the apologetic argument for the faith, but this man still did not become a Christian. Well, they lost touch. Fast forward years later, fast forward years later, and all of a sudden, he, he, he somehow encounters this guy again, but guess what has happened now? He's become a Christian. And so he talks to him, he says, what was it? What was the argument that finally convinced you? And to his surprise, it was none of the arguments along the lines of what they had been talking about. He said he went to a church service and he heard a pastor warn about death, and the judgment of hell, and he realized he needed, to get to, he needed to put his trust in Christ. And that pastor said it just convicted him that the, one of our jobs is, yes, we can, we can have all the answers for people, and we can polish the message and package it really nice and show how Christianity ha has all these answers, but sometimes people just need to be warned to flee the judgment that is to come. And many times when people are warned of the judgment, they will repent, they will come to Christ. But, and I would encourage you to study this out and tell me if you know of any exceptions, but
But I really cannot think of any times when people are experiencing the judgment of God that their hearts actually turn. I, I can't think of, there may be a couple of cases in the scripture, but it's almost as if once the judgment is, it's like God is so long-suffering that he withholds, remember Nineveh? I mean, Nineveh surely deserved judgment and holds it back, holds it back, and they're warned judgment is going to come and they repent. God is not eager to bring his judgments. He is, is long-suffering. He is patient. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I'd be interested to hear if you know of any, any, but I can't think of any times when the judgment actually comes that people's hearts actually turn. And so it's important for us to remember that, and as we, as we are messengers to people, like we can't be afraid to be criticized like Elisha. We can't be afraid to speak up about the, and warn people of the judgment that is to come. The, he, his reaction here is, oh, well, you know what? Let's just kill Elisha. So that's in verse number 13. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 31. Then he said, God, do so more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. But Elijah sat in his, Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, before the guy even came from the king, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer hath sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door. Hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him. And he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? So Elijah knew he, Elisha knew he was coming. And he predicted this would come. And then in verse number 7, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, Shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria? Now, what is this verse referencing back to? Verse 1 here, what is that referencing back to just a few minutes ago? I sip my coffee slowly on a Sunday morning. Okay, that's true. There's something very specific, though. There's like a cross-reference here. Yep. Exactly. A few verses ago in chapter 6, we said, what were they spending a great amount of money on to eat? on a, a donkey's head and bird dung. They're, they're so starved, they're spending fortunes, silver. But now, the things they really want are going to be sold just for pennies. You need some flour? You need some barley? Just a, just a little bit. And so they, he says, in 24 hours, your situation is going to be completely reversed. That's like... Forget an improbability, it would seem in the moment that that is an impossibility. Why? From a human conception, 
Best case scenario, what happens? From human, you're, think about the situation that the city's in. Best case scenario, what could happen? Forget miraculous things, think from a human standpoint. Best case scenario, what, what does your future look like? Well, no, it, I'm saying like if things, like if you had hope and optimism, like your best case scenario would be what? All right. Okay, everybody, let's think about where are we? What's going on in the lives of these people? They have no food. Why do they have no food? They're besieged by what? An army. So if my life is going to get better, the best possible outcome would be what would happen tomorrow? Thank you. Okay, we're together now. The army would go away. They would, you would look out the next day, and the army would be marching away. But then what would happen to you? Now you could do what? Well, they would probably not because they're probably going to take their food with them, right? But you might. You'd go scavenge whatever's left. But then what did you say? You'd have to, you got to plant your new crops again. You got to go find food somewhere. So best case scenario, you're a little less starving tomorrow than you are today. But your situation is still really bad. So the prophet says, the, the complete, like how is this? even possible. Well, obviously, we're going to see there's going to be a miraculous way that it's possible. But not just that, but this is interesting. God, God is going to turn back the hand of judgment here. God is going to turn away the judgment from Israel. Now, why? Have Israel repented? Have we seen the, the nation repent? Nope. They're still idolatrous of heart. In fact, even in the middle of the judgment, what are they, who are they blaming? In the, in the mouthpiece of the king, they're blaming God. They're blaming the prophet of God. Is this any reason, is this any reason for God to turn away his hand of judgment from them? No. So you tell me, why do you think God is going to do this for them? It doesn't explicitly say, it doesn't say crystal clear, but why do you think, perhaps, why would God do this? Why would God turn away the, the judgment from them? Yeah, Steve? I think that's one. That would be a good reason enough. I think there could be some other possibilities, but I think it could just be God showing them what he can do. That's true. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll go with that. Other reasons? Why could, what could be happening here? Yeah. That's true. That is true. He has not completely forsaken them. Why else? Death? Right. That's a good point. It could be a... That's actually, that's a good one too. You kind of put those together, that, that God can do mighty things, you're still his people, and before your heart follows the king, maybe you should follow the true king. There's another possibility, I think, here. Who's being, whose life is being threatened right now? Elisha's life. Like, I think it's possible that what's happening is God is, God is intervening for the sake of Elisha. 
that God is intervening for the sake of Elisha. The king says, Elisha, you're going to die. Well, Elisha sits, it's not time for Elisha to die. Elisha sits very calmly in the house with the elders gathered around. He's like, all right, send this message back to the king. Tomorrow your problem's going to be solved. In fact, tomorrow your problem's going to be solved beyond its wildest dreams. There is a principle in the Bible as well, and, and you're, all those comments may be the actual reason. Um, there's an, and, and I'm not saying my reason is even better than that. Those may even be better. But there is another possibility, and you see in the Bible that sometimes God spares a wicked people because of the righteous few that are still there. Where else have we seen that? Do you know where else that, that is found? Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. If you could just find, Abraham says, God, if you would just find, if you just find 10, right? If you just find 10 people there, would you spare the city? Sometimes God spares, God withholds judgment for the sake of the remnant of his people. And we know that before, if you study in the book of the Revelation, before the final judgment in the end times, the church is going to be removed before that final and ultimate judgment. And we could, we could talk about the timing of, of what and that, but the point is, at some point, the final judgment is going to come, and the church will be removed before that final judgment. So, God's going to turn this thing around dramatically. Dramatically. And look what it says in verse number, number 2. Then a lord, this is some kind of ruler, on whose hand the king leaned. This is an important ruler. It's like the right-hand man, so to speak, to the king. This is one of the, one of the, in the administration. He says, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be. Now, he's not saying this hopefully. He's saying this critically and sarcastically. Like, okay, in other words, Elisha, what you just said is so improbable, is so unlikely that, yeah, sure, Elisha. And next what's going to happen, I'm going to look up, there's going to be a big window in heaven, and all the food's going to come down from there. And he said, and he looks at this guy. Whew, this is, the, this is a warning to the skeptic. He looks at this guy, and Elisha looks at him, and he says, you know what? You're going to see it, but you're not going to eat it. You won't get a bite of it. So, thus, and then the scene blacks out, the chapter closes. That's literally how the scene ends. He's, that's all that he gives us, just boom, fades away with those ominous words from Elisha to this doubting skeptic. I'm reminded of the words in, that Peter says that the scoffers will come in the last days. And the scoffers will say, where is the sign of his coming? Since, the, since our ancestors have died, we've been hearing about all these promises. Where, are, where is the sign of his coming? And Peter says, well, he says that um, I was doing really well. Like, I was remembering the passage and paraphrasing it, and then it just went blank. Frank says it's because I'm getting old. So, um, oh, that, so Peter says this. So you say, where is the sign of his coming? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He's faithful. And, and he, says, he says, don't you know that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years? 
And he says, and then he says that there's a coming judgment day. And, and he, so the, Peter answers the skeptics. And here, the same thing happens to this guy. You don't, you don't think God can do this? Well, you're going to see it, but you won't taste it. Well, chapter closes and we open the new section. I think this is the next morning. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. Well, okay, this is a dramatic introduction. What do these guys have to do with anything? So we go from the palace, we go from the wall of the city to the palace of the king to the drama and intrigue with Elisha. And now we look, and there sitting at the entrance of the gate are these four guys that everybody stayed far, far, far away from. These, le- these guys that had leprosy. And they've now become the focal point of what happens next. And they said one to another, it's like they had this epiphany. Why are we sitting here until we die? Like they'd pretty much given up hope, their lives are hopeless, and they say, we've pretty much got nothing left to lose. Why would we just sit here and wait to die? Let's do this. If we go into the city, there's a famine in the city, and we'll die there. But if we sit here, we're going to die here. Now, therefore, come. Let's go to the host of the Syrians. Let's try. Let's just go see what happens. They're like, let's just speed this thing up. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, this is just option number three, where we die. Not a real rosy outlook on their future. But it kind of makes sense, right? Like You can see where they're coming from. Like We can just sit here and die. We can go in the city and die. Or there's food in the camp of the Syrians. Let's just see what they do with us. So that's what they do. They rose up. Now, in the, now it's nighttime. They rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they came to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there's nobody there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. They are convinced that the genius king of Israel has hired some mercenary soldiers from the Hittites and the Egyptians, and the noise that they heard that God sent was so significant, they just went into a panic. And so they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and they fled for their life. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, They went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment. Can you can you imagine these guys? Like they just they they walk in. There's nobody here, and you know at first they're probably pretty nervous because they're just waiting for somebody to come around the corner. They finally realize there ain't nobody here, and they just start fooling around. And they're eating the food, and they're putting on the jewelry, and they're laughing or whatever. And then they start to do what people do. You know, they're like, oh, we're going to keep this for ourselves. And they, so they start gathering stuff, and they start hiding it and storing it away. And they go into another tent. They do, the, uh, they, they do the same thing. And then in verse number 9, 
it says, Then they said one to another, Wait a minute. This isn't right. This is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief, mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. So they came and called unto the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there. Neither voice of man, but horses tied, and asses tied, and the tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. And the king arose in the night, and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry. Therefore are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. So the king thinks it's an ambush. He thinks it's a trap. And one of his servants answered, so this is amazing too. Just, last, just earlier today, he heard the prophecy from Elisha, but he still is unwilling to believe it, even as it starts to unfold before his eyes. Even as the good news, do you see the gospel parallels here? There's good tidings, there's great news that deliverance has come, and even with the good news before him, he still doesn't want to believe it. And one of his servants answered and said, let, well, the guy's like, well, we've got to at least check it out. Like, maybe it's true. So he said, how about we take five horses that are left? Behold, there is all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, are they even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed? And let us send and see. We've got to at least go look. So they took, therefore, two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And they went after them unto Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned. Remember that guy? He said, all right, you're in charge of the gate. You stay here. You know, as everybody's coming in and out. And the people trod upon him. They trampled him in the gate, and he died. There he is, seeing all of the people coming celebrating, rejoicing, knowing that deliverance had come. And as he watches them, they trample him and he dies. As the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. And it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, now if... Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. So God's plan, God warns of the judgment to come. God gives a plan of deliverance. But there is judgment for those who scoff and balk at God's goodness, at God's 
favor. I think those are the biggest lessons that come from this account that we read about in 2 Kings. Anybody have any additional thoughts on this passage before we close it up this morning? All right. Good stuff. Okay, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get ready for our main service today. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that we have this time today to worship you, to study your word. I pray that uh, you would bless, that uh, you'd move in our midst. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.